Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College. As we get started, I wanted to put a request out there of you, our listeners. At the end of the summer, Ed Hatkey, who has been producing this show for five years now, is going to be retiring from OnScript. And we're so grateful to Ed for all the incredible work he's put in over these last five years in, in helping OnScript become what it is today. And we really couldn't do have done this without him. Uh, he's produced probably between our different podcasts, 200 shows, and that's an enormous uh, amount of work that he's done and, and help that he's been. And there's a lot that goes into that behind the scenes. And I just wanted to put a request out there to see if anyone is interested in volunteering to help produce OnScript. And uh, there are some perks that come with that. And if you're interested, please email me at onscriptpodcast at gmail.com and I'll be in touch with you to discuss that and we can talk about details. But I, I thought I'd at least put the word out to see if any of you were interested, if that's something of a passion of yours, um, then I'd love to be in touch with you. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, we appreciate any reviews you could give us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, and if you could spread the word too. We're, you know, we're entering into the, the late spring season when people are out at sporting events. That's a great time to turn to someone next to you and say, huh, you think this, this game is, is interesting. Wait till you listen to OnScript. And then you can give, you know, drop the link. OnScript podcast. What is our link? OnScript.study. Um, you could share that with them, uh, as well as sharing the word about our Biblical World podcast in our short series in parallel as well. Okay, on with the episode. Welcome back to OnScript, a show that features conversation and biblical studies and theology. OnScript is hosted by Matt Lynch, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. But I'm co-host too, and I am none of those people. This is Matthew Bates. I'll be co-hosting this episode. But we are twisting things up slightly for you today, because although technically I'm your co-host, I have a couple of my students here with me to help out, Cassandra, Nick, and Jake. They'd like to say hello. 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 Hey there. Cassandra, Nick, and Jake are going to help facilitate this episode, and they're helping because our special guest today is renowned Pauline scholar, Professor Michael J. Gorman. Mike has a new book out. In fact, this one just released a month ago, Romans, a Theological and Pastoral Commentary, published in 2022 by Erdman's. It's an exciting new synthesis of Romans. Meanwhile, Cassandra and Nick and Jake are all my undergraduate students at Quincy University. All three are theology majors, and they are all presently taking a course from me that focuses on Romans. Just so the audience is aware of what we've been doing in our Romans class, we've obviously been reading the letter of Romans itself, along with other pertinent portions of Paul's letters, but we've primarily been using two books to stir up conversation. Douglas Moo's Encountering the Book of Romans, and Jackson Wu's Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes. Not only is it somewhat hilarious to get to say Moo and Wu in every single one of our course sessions, um, they also read Romans in quite different ways, uh, which is stimulating for us. For the interested listener, I previously interviewed Jackson W. or Jackson Wu. He writes under a pseudonym because he's a missionary theologian who's worked in sensitive areas. Um, anyway, I previously interviewed him, so you can look up that past episode if you've missed that one. Meanwhile, back to Mike Gorman's new Romans commentary. Mike's is certainly a book I'd like to use in the classroom in the future. So even though we haven't been able to read it together as a class due to its newness, I thought it would be fun to let my students grill him about it so they can see if Mike can clear up all the muddy water that we've churned in class. Welcome to OnScript, Mike. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. But I make no promises for clearing up all the muddy waters you've been stirring around. Oh, you can do it, Mike. Now, you've, you've been a guest with us before. In fact, I think you were one of our very first guests um, we had back in 2016-ish when we first started the podcast. And 
We were talking at that time about your um, book, Becoming the Gospel, and that's a book I like. And I, I wonder if you have done it yet, Mike. Have you managed to become the gospel? I can't do that because it's a corporate, it's a corporate uh, reality embodying the gospel. So I hope I'm part of embodying the gospel. You hope you're, you're a member in the body. Right. All right, putting on some of those gospel virtues. Well, Mike, Romans is a mountain peak of sorts. I think that's fair to say. And you've written extensively on Paul throughout your career. You've circled around. You've made forays. You've, um, you've, uh, you've maybe put your pickaxe in partway up the mountain. Um, but this time, uh, you at least have attempted the summit by writing a Romans commentary. Um, so what prompted you to, to try to, to summit here? Well, of course, there's tons of commentaries on Romans going back almost 2,000 years um, and plenty in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, I had written for my textbook, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, I had written a um, short commentary, which is actually the basis for this longer commentary that was uh, published in, originally in 2004 and then 2017, the second edition. So there's been a kind of co embryonic commentary already. I had also written um, a couple of essays that attempted to look at Romans from the perspective of my quote-unquote school of, of Pauline studies, namely uh, the perspective on Paul that focuses on participation in Christ as as central to understanding Paul. The participationist perspective is what we sometimes call it. And there was really no commentary from that perspective. So uh, years ago, Erdman's had said, why don't you turn this little commentary into a bigger commentary? And that plus the fact that I had um, written these short essays and taught Romans many, many times, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. And particularly with the lack of a commentary that really focuses on participation in Christ and in the mission of God. Well, I think it's safe to say that um, the whole church and the academy will be grateful that you've written this commentary. It's really excellent. I, I read through chunks of it in preparation for this interview, and uh, as with all your work, I admire it and enjoyed it. Um, Follow-up question to the last one, though. Um, I kind of alluded to the idea of a mountain peak there and uh, suggested maybe Romans might be it. Is Romans the mountain peak uh, for all Paul's theology? What do you think? Is Romans the peak? Well, that's an interesting question. I guess it depends on how you define peak, right? If, if we think of peak as the summit, everything is leading toward it and it's the highest and, and quote unquote best, you get the best view, if you will, from the mountaintop or whatever. In some ways, yes, but I think it's important for us as, as readers of the New Testament not to undervalue or, or undervalue other letters of Paul or other parts of the New Testament, for that matter, or overvalue Romans. There are parts of Paul's theology that are simply not in Romans. We don't get anything about the Lord's Supper, for instance. Um, there are other aspects of Pauline theology that are absent. But um, it, it's interesting. I've just been working. My, my next uh, commentary project is a commentary on 1 Corinthians. I've just been working on the introduction. And what I have to do in that commentary is say, well, everybody thinks Romans is the, is the summit of, of Pauline theology. <laughs> but it's a very practical letter, too. And now let's look at 1 Corinthians, which everybody thinks is very practical. I want to emphasize the deep theology in 1 Corinthians, in addition to its practical dimension. So I, I guess I'm fence-sitting a little bit there, Matt, in answering, that, in answering that question. It's obviously profound. As I say in the commentary, it is the most influential letter, in my opinion, ever written by anybody anywhere, and that's pretty significant. Well, you're you're preparing for a you know a political career after theology with that kind of fence sitting, Mike. <laughs> um, let me introduce Mike Gorman a little more fully to the audience. Dr. Michael Gorman is the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. Mike is the author of numerous books, but some of his most renowned titles are Apostle of the Crucified Lord, Erdman's, 
uh, cruciformity with Erdman's, inhabiting the cruciform God with Erdman's, uh, becoming the gospel with Erdman's, and reading Revelation responsibly. I believe Cascade, although I didn't look it up. Is that right? Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, also speaking personally, I don't know if it's appropriate to play favorites when I'm hosting, but I'll be honest. Mike is one of my heroes in the field of biblical scholarship. When I obtain my own research results, I often find myself landing on trail that Mike has already blazed for us. I've definitely been impacted by Mike's scholarship and his heart for the church. So if you haven't started reading Michael Gorman's work yet, hasten to it. Today we're discussing Mike's new book, Romans, a theological and pastoral commentary published by Erdman's in 2022. It's an outstanding new contribution, and as always, we have a link to that on our website, onscript.study, if you're interested. So, Mike, um, I'm going to hand this over to my students, although I'll be popping back in. Um, they're going to ask some questions um, of you in just a second. Um, they're tired of homework. They're tired of papers. They're tired of tests. They're ready to flip the table, and they're going to put you to the test here. Um, maybe, they'll, maybe they'll flip tables like Jesus. I don't know. Uh, we'll have to find out. Uh, but we're going to ease you in. We've got a softball question to get you started. It should be a pretty easy one. Here comes Nick. Okay. Hi, Dr. Gorman. Hello, Nick. Good to meet you. You as well. My question is, what would you say your favorite part or section of Romans is? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. My favorite part, uh, that's somewhere either Romans 6 or Romans 8, I'll have to say, because of their profound theological content. Although this is a really hard question to answer because so many parts of Romans are so important, and I, and I don't want to uh, minimize the other parts of the letter. Um, but for me, Romans 6 and Romans 8 are so much uh, revelatory of Paul's understanding of the, the fundamental structure of Christian life, to be baptized into Christ and to die and rise with him to new life, to, to live in Christ and in the Spirit, uh, have the Spirit and Christ live within us, and to um, anticipate the the if you will, the eschatological glory in a, in a way right now, which is marked by suffering, is, is just about as profound theology as, as one could ask for. So it, for me, it's a toss-up between six and eight, but probably I, I, would, I would probably lean towards six because I've worked with that chapter uh, in so many different contexts, so many different ways. Hi, Dr. Gorman, Cassandra here. Nice to meet you, Cassandra. Nice to meet you. I got your book. I started reading it. It's fabulous. Um, so my question is, in Romans 12, 2, Paul states, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What does Paul mean when he says test and approve? Who are we to approve God's will? That's a very specific and good question. Uh, I think the notion there would be more like to demonstrate and show forth or or prove rather than to approve the will of God. So the, the, the context, of course, is you've just finished the first 11 chapters, which is all about what God's merciful response to human sin is, and now what's going to happen about that? How are we going to respond? And what does it mean from ch in chapters 12 and 15 to live out a life that is, as Paul says in Philippians, in conformity to the gospel? And so that's, that's the position that Paul's taking there, 12, 1 to 2, saying it's going to be a kind of ultra-cultural or, or alternative to the current culture with the renewing of body and mind. You remember Romans 1 about how there's no... Um, person who worships God properly, and that devolves into all kinds of injustice and, and morality. So, so now, the will of God is to embody and to show forth what God intended humanity to look like, and that requires the unlearning and the relearning of what it means to be human in light of the gospel. And so, uh, I, I think the translations of 12.2 are probably a little bit misleading, but the general tone of 12, 1 to 2 is be transformed and you will, in, in, as a community, as individuals and a community, you will show forth this new humanity that God has created in Christ. Thank you. Thank you for the question. 
This is Matt again. Uh, Mike, I should have warned you that my students are writing um, exegetical papers, and Cassandra's paper is on uh, Romans 12, uh, you know, in that passage. So she's, uh, she's trying to write, she's trying to get you to write her paper for her. That's, that's, uh, I think that's her strategy. Um, I should have, I should have known what she would do. Um, but uh, that's pretty clever, isn't it? Now she's probably going to just copy verbatim what you said and write that in the paper. And how could I ever say it's wrong? Right? Like I'd have to give her an A. Um, <laughs> clever, Cassandra, very clever. Now, um, we, we had a question also, Mike, from a student that would prefer to rena- remain anonymous. Um, and, uh, um, her question had to do with, um, like, what power does transformation bring? So it does relate a little bit to the question Cassandra just asked and what you, the topic you've just been speaking on. But I was wondering, especially as I know you've worked a lot on theosis, um, you might, yeah, how does that work? Can you lay out a little bit more about what power does transformation bring and maybe connect that to uh, to the topic of theosis for us? Yeah, I would almost want to say that it's not power that brings that, that not that transformation brings power but that power brings transformation it's almost it's almost the flip of that but i get the point um <clears throat> to go back to cassandra's question as you said at least my response to it the i think one of the really powerful things about about romans is how paul depicts the human condition from a variety of angles and then makes it clear that this broken humanity in, in all of its variety, whether it's um, sexual or uh, in other interpersonal or with respect to, to basic relations with God, idolatry versus worship, um, violence, all these different aspects of the human condition that are negative and that devolve over time as, as uh, my professor at Princeton said years ago, uh, like being sucked into quicksand from which there's no extraction. You get deeper and deeper into it. I remember uh, watching the movie Lawrence of Arabia one time. There's a scene where the person is in the desert and they get sucked into the quicksand. I mean, it's just a painful scene to watch, but just like that. And, and I think that there's a kind of way in which that's Paul's way of depicting humanity. And now... There's the possibility and the reality of that being undone. I, I like to use that language of the undoing of, of the human predicament. So it, just like when you, when you screw a, a screw into a piece of wood or something, and then you have to get it out, you have to take it out so step by step, pull, un, undo it. And, and uh, there's, there's, there's a way in which that's the case. But for Paul, of course, this doesn't happen by human effort doesn't happen by accumulating wisdom in the way of the Stoics or something like that. It happens by virtue of a dramatic um, transforming uh, encounter with God in Christ by by the virtue of the preaching of the word. And uh, it kind of happens. And, And then that unleashes this power of transformation in which the image of God, Paul doesn't use this language exactly, but to connect it to theosis, in which the image of God that's been hurt, not eliminated, but um, distracted and detracted by this ongoing sin and violence and so forth, now gets to be remade by the power of of God in Christ and specifically in the Christian life and the power of the Spirit. And and that enables us, according to Paul, to become more Christ-like and what I've argued, as you know, Matt, because God is uh, revealed, self-revealed in Christ, God, Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. When we become like Christ by the power of the Spirit, we are simultaneously becoming more human, in, in the best sense of the word, and more God-like. Um, and... and the basic definition of theosis is transformation into the image of, of God in Christ. So um, this is a this is a lifelong process. Uh, I think you know present your bodies not once, not twice, but daily, as I think at least implied in, in Romans twelve one and two. Sorry, Cassandra, I'm giving you too much information here, too much perspective. Um, but 
in the ancient world, moral transformation was probably one of the top three or four topics of, of, of philosophical and, and, and religious discussion. And Paul has a very specific response to that. To become like Christ is to become both more human and more godlike. Thank you. Jake Sachs? Hello, Dr. Gorman. Um, pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, do you think that Paul is endorsing natural theology in Romans 1? Great question. I think he is endorsing something like natural, I would call it natural revelation more than natural theology. I don't think Paul believes we can discern a whole lot about the nature of God, uh, but what we can know is that God, by virtue of being the creator, is in some sense manifested in the creation. And for that reason, uh, human beings, Paul says, have no excuse to not acknowledge that reality that God exists and that God is, for instance, all-powerful. At least that seems to be the main um, divine trait or attribute, if you will, that, that Paul sees in Romans 1. But depending on what you understand natural theology to be, if it means a kind of complex, almost like a system of lots of moving parts with lots of um, ability to, uh, shall we say, um, define, describe, and articulate God's character and attributes in detail, I don't think, Pat, I don't think Paul would go that far. But he's clear that we ought to be able to acknowledge the existence of God and the, um, I would say, omnipotence of God uh, from observing the creation. No, I, yeah, I was just in general curious about that and about Romans 1. Same, and, and there's a sim similar question about natural law. I don't think <clears throat> when we read Romans 1, we should come to the conclusion that Paul's a sort of natural law theorist. But he also clearly believes that... Um, human beings ought to be able to derive some sort of understanding of both the creation and the way to relate to the creator simply by virtue of being human. But that doesn't take us very far. Dr. Gorman, it's Nick again. Uh, I come from a Lutheran background, so I'm interested to see what you would think on uh, Luther's interpretations of Romans and what you think he got wrong. Wow, I wish you could ask my Lutheran pastor student who's writing a paper on that exact subject as we speak to present right after Easter. Uh, I have to confess it's been a long time since I've read Luther on Romans in detail. I did not do that in preparation for this commentary. Uh, I, of course, have read Luther's commentary on Romans and on Galatians over the years, so I don't know that I can... Um, answer you as explicitly or, or fully as you would like. But let me say a couple of, of things. In his preface to the letter to the Romans, Luther says, this is all you need to read. I mean, this is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the, it goes back to Professor Bates' question at the beginning. This is the best thing in the New Testament. And I think to a degree, Luther got that right. I mean, this is, there's so much of the gospel and so much of Christian theology in Romans. But to say that's all we need, not quite. So 75% right, 25% wrong maybe on that one. Um, similarly, like we all do, Luther had to ask contextual questions. And his questions were very appropriate. What does it mean to, to be justified? What does it mean, what is the relationship between, say, good works and justification? Justification in medieval church practices. But I think what he got right that a lot of people miss on that, on that question, yes, justification is not by works. Luther's absolutely right about that. Justification is by faith. But as Professor Bates has written in multiple places, and, and I've affirmed and written myself, what does Paul mean by faith? And I think it means something closer to believing allegiance and, and union with Christ. And there have been a number of scholars in recent years who have said, Luther said a lot more about the necessity of union with Christ as part of justification than a lot of Protestants have realized. So, for instance, uh, the one of the books you're reading, uh, Doug Moo, if, if, if I recall from his commentary on Romans correctly, he would say justification and sanctification or justification and union with Christ are 
are, are pretty separate, separated. I, I don't want to misquote him, so I'm not 100% sure about that. Others have definitely said that. I, I know in his commentary on Galatians, where he actually picks up my interpretation of Galatians 2, he says something very similar to what I just said. I think Luther gets it right, that you don't have justification without union with Christ. It's not simply about God saying you're forgiven or you're pronounced uh, acquitted, but justification, being right with God, involves being one with Christ. So those are two big things I would say. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Hi again, Dr. Gorman. No Romans 12, Cassandra. <laughs> it is. And in fact, it's Romans 12, 17 through 19, Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I'm taking a class in the ethics of criminal punishment, and we are just beginning to study the death penalty. Um, and the death penalty is something that I struggle with as a Christian because it seems like there's verses in the Bible that would support it, but uh, other verses that would perhaps not. And I'm wondering, do these verses have any application when it comes to the death penalty? Great question. Thank you. I think they do. Um, but I, I would like to back up and, and sort of talk a little bit about what I think is the theology behind that, and that we get right out of Romans. So in Romans 5, of course, Paul says, while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were bad, I mean, all kinds of ways of describing that, but enemies is, is I think, a critical part of that, that God in Christ has worked to reconcile us to himself. So reconciliation is at the heart of what God is doing. And justification and reconciliation there go hand in hand in Romans 5. To be put right with God is to be reconciled with God and to be given the gift of the Spirit. So at the core of the gospel is reconciliation, not punishment. John does not say, I know we're talking about Paul, but John does not say, God so hated the world that he punished Christ, uh, but God so loved the world that he sent the Son. And I think Paul has a similar theology. The cross is about God's love, God's reconciling love. We get that in 2 Corinthians 5. God it was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So that's the core. And so if, if the heart of the gospel is reconciliation and even enemy love, then it seems to me that Christians, that's why Paul says, don't seek vengeance, but love your enemy and, and, and do good to all, try to be at peace with all. The way Paul uses the word all there, I think your translation had everyone or something like that. But um, when Paul uses that phrase, and he uses it in about four or five different letters, it's simply the word all. He means outsiders. He means non-Christians, non-believers. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of Paul saying that peace is a mark, reconciling activity is a fundamental mark of the gospel. And so it seems to me that the first thing Paul would say about the death penalty is it, it needs to, Christian approach to punishment in general needs to be looking for restoration rather than punishment. And once you kill somebody, there's no more chance for restoration. There's no more chance for healing. There's no more chance for reconciliation between the offender and the offended family who's left, you know. So if, if punishment is not the issue, but restoration, now, now that doesn't mean you should let people off scot-free. They need to be disciplined. They need to, society needs to be protected, etc. They need to learn. Uh, it seems to me that the, the first thing Christians should say from a Pauline perspective is our primary goal is to engage in reconciliation and restoration and that means um, not supporting the death penalty, but supporting all the other things that can work toward reconciliation and restoration. So rather than taking a kind of text here and text there approach, I think Paul would want us to think theologically along those lines for us, which is, by the way, the same reason I think Paul would say Christians should not participate in anything that involves uh, lethal violence. Um, it, it, it kind of goes against 
well, it doesn't kind of, it, it goes against the heart of the gospel. Thank you very much for that. It's really helpful. Sure. Thank you. Hi again. What is your opinion, Dr. Gorman, on the Pistis Christua debate? My opinion is that there are two sides um, and a third side, which is kind of a wishy-washy middle, uh, that it means both. Um, so the debate is ongoing. If you want to know what my opinion is rather than about the nature of the debate, I, I, I knew you meant that. Um, it seems to me that the phrase Pistis Christu and its similar um, phrases mean fundamentally a reference to what Christ did in dying in a faithfulness and obedience to the Father on the cross. So I would take the so-called um, subjective interpretation, although I don't think that's the best description, uh, that the subject of that, what we call genitive in Greek or in English, of, prepositional phrase, the faith of Christ, refers to Christ's faithfulness, especially to the Father, to the point of death. That means that we need to make sure that we understand in passages like Galatians 2, Romans 3, Philippians 3, and other places where that text kind of text occurs, <clears throat> if we look at them, it now refocuses our attention on uh, Christ as the means of God's reconciling work, as I was saying to Cassandra, or the means of our justification and salvation. But we still have to have a mode of appropriating that. And if you look at all those passages, they all still have some reference to belief in them, to faith. So it, one of the arguments against the faith of Christ it, uh, position is, well, it eliminates the need for the human response of faith. And no, it doesn't. It simply says the, what I now call the means of our justification and salvation is Christ's faithful death on the cross, faithful and loving death on the cross. The mode of appropriating that is faith in the sense of dying and rising with Christ, Galatians 2, or sharing in, the faith, sharing in that faithfulness of Christ, as Paul says in, in Romans 3. Um, or we could go to Professor Bates again and talk about dying to oneself and, and aligning oneself in a kind of uh, obedience of faith or faithful uh, believing allegiance to, to Christ or to God in Christ. So um, I, I, I wandered a little bit, but I'm, I'm firmly on the faith or faithfulness of Christ's uh, side, of the Son of God's side, um, and, and explain it that way. Yeah, this is Matt again, jumping back in there. Um, and uh, I'm glad you are on the subjective genitive side, Mike, as I, I am as well. And uh, we've actually had a little mini series on that with on script. We had um, uh, Downs and Lapinga and uh, talked about their book, which emphasizes not just Jesus's faithfulness and his death, of course, but also the risen Christ. And I know you're aware of that book, but uh, Kevin, oh, go ahead. And let me just say, and I, and I agree with that. I think it's a both and, and I think Downs and Lepenga were right to, to press us. And the way I would explain that is the, the risen Christ is the same as the crucified Christ, so he continues his work in the present. Sorry, I wanted to get that point yeah, out. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. But yeah, they do a good job of helping to make sense of Christ's high priestly vocation, right? And his ongoing faithfulness as our mediator. Really an interesting book, excellent book. And Kevin Grosso uh, has that uh, powerful article out. It does make me wonder uh, how much time we have to give the objective genitive people, uh, you know, in terms of an opportunity to respond to Grosso before uh, we just say, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> Grosso's, Grosso seems like he's maybe demonstrated that view impossible. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's certainly a potent argument that Grasso has made, and we, we interviewed him uh, for uh, OnScript as well. Um, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, we have uh, our question that's our million-dollar question that uh, Nick's going to ask for you. I said this is, I told them when they were studying Romans, this is the million-dollar question that everybody wants to try to answer. Uh, so we'll let, we'll let Nick ask the money question for us that we've been aiming for all semester. So, Dr. Gorman, what is the righteousness of God? Uh, well, I would say, first of all, is that it doesn't always necessarily mean the exact same thing everywhere it's used in Paul's letters. Having said that, however, I would say that the primary meaning of the righteousness of God is God's uh, saving, 
re rescuing, redeeming covenant act, uh, covenantal activity to bring God's people and the entire world um, out of sin and into uh, the place of salvation. So it's God's it's God's saving activity, um, which is displayed for Paul most fully uh, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Although it doesn't start there, it 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 was certainly on display in uh, throughout the period of Israel's history and so forth. But that would be my basic. Uh, so I'm I'm more or less in the Tom Wright uh, camp on this with a little bit of nuance. Now I'm, I'm going to ask if all of this is Matt again. So d does it for you have a communicative or participatory dimension as well though, or you would want to say that it, um, somehow or another Christ's righteousness, um, can appropriately be said to be our righteousness or not? That's interesting because you shifted from God's righteousness to Christ's righteousness, which is an interesting shift. It was a, an intentional shift. Yes. So I'm going to answer on the basis of God's righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, which I know is not Romans, but I'm going to suggest that it is uh, deliberate. Uh, the Romans is actually building on 2 Corinthians 5. He says that uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the justice or the righteousness of God. So that actually ties back to my arguments about theosis, that the part of the intention of God's work in Christ is that we can share in this divine um, divine attribute. So uh, I, I don't think we can distinguish in, in biblical theology between a divine attribute and a divine and divine activity. God does what God is and God is what God does. So that in, in that sense, when we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ and we indwell the Spirit of Christ, um, as in the ancient world, you spend time with something and or, and or gaze on something, you become like that something. And I, I think for Paul, that's what it means to be in Christ in part. We, we take on this God-like character that has been displayed in Christ so that we take on this, um, if you will, the as much as humans can, we become more and more like God in, in God's own um, attributes. And, and God's justice is fundamental to that, to, to be the God who makes things right. And it goes back to Cassandra's question. When we become part of that story, um, part of our vocation is to, make, is to be participants in God's mission of making things right. So uh, I, don't, I don't believe in imputed uh, if you were moving in that direction, some kind of imputation of Christ's righteousness, uh, I don't think Paul says that. Yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't affirm an imputed righteousness either, but I would, I think along your lines, suggest that do, we do somehow or another share in the righteousness of God, which we we want to say also. But anyway, um, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears on you here, Mike. Um, since last time we had you on the show, um, we've introduced a speed round uh, which is, of course, um, something that our guests dread with cold sweat, right? But our um, our audience delights in. Um, maybe maybe I'm overstating it. I don't know. But the idea is this: we're going to give you a short burst of um, of questions, and you don't really get to defend your answer. You just tell us what your answer is. It's just an off the cuff kind of thing. And a lot of these things have nothing to do with theology, although at least one of them does. All right. So um, you ready for the speed round? Do they have anything to do with Romans? Uh, maybe, but not many. <laughs> No. Okay. All right. All right. The first one. Do you think cows are conscious? Yes. Should we eat them anyway? No. I'm vegetarian. Have you ever driven a motorcycle? No. Are you willing to sing a song for me right now on the spot? Uh, absolutely not. Oh, I, was, I had one ready. I was gonna, you were going to say, I don't know what song. And I was going to say Rock of Ages. I was going to make you sing Rock of Ages. Um, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. That's as much as I can see. Oh, let me hide myself in thee, right? But that's good. We'll, we'll. Uh, I'm going to give you a little uh, applause there. Uh, that that was that was good. I would have um, I would have rather sung something in French. Uh, I was practicing that last with my wife last night. Well, what is the what's the most awkward thing for you, Mike, about being a professional Bible scholar? The most awkward thing is realizing how little I know. Oh, good. 
All right, scariest thing about growing older is? Growing older. <laughs> Do you ever turn up the music in your house and then shake your booty, Mike? Mm, if I did, I wouldn't let it, let you know it. <laughs> no, I'll answer no to that. I'm, I'm, we're going to... Yeah, we'll ask your wife uh, for a fuller report on any booty shaking activities in your house with the music up. All right. Um, what killed the dinosaurs? Uh, I believe that would be Noah. Noah. Noah killed them. Didn't get them on the ark. I no, see. No. Um, all right. Um, and so what advice would you most urgently pass along to undergraduate theology students? This is a more serious question. You take a little more time. Um, I would say read as many journal articles as you possibly can. And book reviews. And I don't think we asked you this last time because I don't, we might have, but maybe not. I don't remember if we were doing this question or not yet. But if I did, if we did ask, I don't remember what you said. What's the most important biblical studies or theology book written in the last 50 years? And you can answer that either personally or in terms of field impact. Most important biblical or theology book. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say in the field of biblical studies... Richard Hayes's The Moral Vision of the New Testament would be up up near the top. Um, if we if we go more generally in theology, I would probably say something early by Howard Wass, maybe Community of Community of Character or whatever that Community and Character book was called. Um, well, those are two worthy individuals, Hayes and Howard Wass, uh, for sure. Um, interesting, good choices too. I don't think we've had anyone say the moral vision by Hayes. I think we've had some other people who've said Hayes, uh, other, either Echoes or Hayes's, you know, uh, Faith of Christ book, but I don't know if we've had anyone say moral vision. So, uh, Hayes is obviously a giant in the field. All right. So we're, we're getting back to, we're jumping back to normal questions here. And, um, uh, I'm going to hand the microphone over to Jake here for another question. Okay. Uh, Dr. Gorman, how would you understand what Paul is saying when he says all Israel will be saved? What is his claim there? So this is one of the most debated uh, texts in all of, of Paul's letters, and especially therefore in Romans. So my view is that I, I'll give you my main view and then my sort of uh, backup view. My, my view is that Paul is consistently throughout Romans, speaking about salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike, that God's mercy ex- extends to all, and that the, all, the Israel in uh, that end of Romans refers to ethnic Israel, and specifically, therefore, does not refer to the church as the new Israel. So I think that's the main thing I would say. It refers to ethnic Israel. I do believe that Paul believes that Gentiles are are welcome as Gentiles to be grafted in, as he says there in chapter 11, into um, the people of God. Um, But that in Romans 9 to 11, at least, he's not calling Israel, or not calling the church Israel. Um, Or he's not calling this community of Gentiles and Jews Israel. He's referring to ethnic Israel. Now, how about the all? I tend to think that because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, which he says in that same passage, um, that the people of God are all Jews of all time. That's, that's, my, that's my, my belief. However, my backup view, which is a pretty close second, would be that um, all Israel, as it often means in the Bible, means Israel as a whole and not necessarily every individual. So I don't know how that would play out uh, in terms of exegesis of Romans 9 to 11. But for me, the most important thing is it it refers to ethnic Israel, uh, the original chosen people. All right, Mike, time is flying along here. So we're going to do two more final questions. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Nick to ask um, and you, the only thing that you can't say uh, when you answer this next question is you can't say uh, the all Israel will be saved. That can't be your choice. You got to choose a different one. Okay, Nick's going to ask a question. Dr. Gorman, in your opinion, what would you say the hardest section of Romans is to interpret or to comprehend? All Israel will be saved. <laughs> uh, 
Sorry. Uh, let me think about that. The hardest. Well, yeah, the hardest to understand in terms of sort of what Paul meant and how we are to interpret that in a contemporary setting, those seem to me to be somewhat different questions. I would say Romans 13, 1 to 7 might be the most challenging to interpret in a, in a good way. That's all, you know, about the authorities and sub subordination, submission, whatever. I, I think it's, I think it's uh, the hardest to interpret because it has been so often misinterpreted. Uh, a close runner-up, of course, would be the sexuality references in Romans 1. Not so much because I think it's hard to understand what Paul means there, but, but how we um, address the issues raised in that passage. But I, I think that those two passages would be my, my top two in terms of ongoing interpretation rather than necessarily strict exegesis. Thanks. And I get uh, the honor of the final question here, Mike. Uh, this is Madigan. But I, I get to ask it on behalf of uh, one of our anonymous students who preferred not to ask questions in person. But it was such a good question, especially as a final question. Uh, and that's this. How does Paul want us to apply Romans to our lives? Um, certainly, that's very pragmatic. We have a lot of pastors who listen. Um, but uh, most of our listeners, I think it's safe to say, are, are Christian, and that this is a question that's uh, on all of our minds. How do we apply Romans today? Great, great question. Uh, so thank you, um, dear student. I would say a, a couple of things uh, uh, of many that could be said. The first thing I would say is what I say always about Paul <clears throat> is that, especially in the Western context, we need to remember that Paul is speaking to a community. This is not a letter written for or to individual Christians. Not that it doesn't apply to them, but Paul is all about the business of community formation and transformation. So the first thing I would say is, this is really about what it means to be the church in the world. And um, that, that requires a kind of ongoing, to go back to Cassandra's passage, uh, an ongoing transformation um, of the mind and the body, the, the thinking, the right thinking and the right doing, um, and in, in that way to live out the gospel, to become the gospel, to go back to that book you mentioned early on, Matt. And specifically, I would say that uh, Romans 12 to 15 tell us a lot about what that ought to look like. Um, that it has a lot to do with uh, being an alternative community, a new way of being human, uh, a microcosmos, as Tom Wright says, about God's future. So living this out in, you know, when, when Cassandra was asking about death penalty, I was about to quote and didn't, the passage in Romans 14 where Paul says that the kingdom of God is not about food and drink, but about Justice and peace, or righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That, that's a really, I think, powerful summary of, of the gospel. So living that out in community, uh, living that out as a witness to the world, uh, a peaceable witness, a, a profoundly um, considerate, community-oriented business, and learning, as, as Paul says, especially in Romans 14 and 15, learning to put, to bear one another's differences about matters that ultimately don't matter. Uh, and discerning what those matters are is, is certainly important. And then I'll say one last thing, and that is to say that I think Romans invites us, in Romans 6 in particular, to not just be a, a community of, of like-minded people who Rejoice, when, uh, rejoice with each other and weep with each other and suffer with one another, but a community that bears witness in the world as, as Paul says in Romans 6, as weapons of justice or weapons of righteousness, to, <clears throat> to be instruments in God's hands of this reconciling uh, work. And that takes various forms for various kinds of people, but to me at least, uh, community formation in that way is ultimately what Romans is all about. 
Well, thank you so much, Mike, for that really powerful reminder. Um, you said a lot in closing there, but I think that the thread running through it, at least that I detected, was the real community focus. And gosh, there are so many forces that are pushing against community building today. Everybody's sort of, you know, like private in their in their cell phone, right in their own little private world. They're superficially making connections, I suppose, but. Um, what a challenge, right, for our current era to try to build community in the midst of um, so many things that seem to be tearing it apart. But the Roman, Romans is certainly a tool for the church, a gift for the church, um, and we're grateful um, for your commentary. Thank you. Well, thanks, Mike, for the conversation today, and thank you also, Cassandra, Nick, Jake, and to other student contributors. It's really been wonderful. And Mike, I think your Romans commentary will become a go-to resource for pastors, students, scholars, um, really everyone. Uh, it's, it's a really rich offering, and I think it hits upon the most weighty theological decisions that everybody needs to make in working through Romans, but does so without bogging down unnecessarily in minutiae. Um, I certainly enjoyed reading swaths of it in preparation for this conversation. It's brand new. Uh, my current students haven't been able to read it yet, although Cassandra has bought her copy already, uh, and I'll certainly have my future students reading it. Um, but I've got a problem, so I've decided to um, solve it this way. Um, because I've got Doug Moo's book and Jackson Wu's book, um, you're going to actually have to arm wrestle um, with them to see who gets the most text time in my class. Are you, are you okay with that? Are you ready to arm wrestle? Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, but um, I mean, I think we need to hear, we need to voice, we need to hear voices from outside the West and outside of Western perspectives. So I'm all for uh, giving pride of place to Jackson Wu. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and it's, it could be just also that he's burly. I've met him. You know, I, I think he might be able to take you down, Mike. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I'm just I'm just teasing. I I have met Jackson and I don't remember how burly he is truthfully. Uh, but uh but uh super super nice guy and uh anyway um yeah we really appreciate this co this conversation Mike. Uh this is Matthew Bates for on script. We've been speaking today with Michael Gorman about his new book Romans, a theological and pastoral commentary released in 2022 with Erdman's I highly recommend it. There's a link to Romans on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks everyone for listening. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.